Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello. Now, imagine spending 10 years in a maximum security Zimbabwean jail for a crime you didn't commit. This was the soul-destroying reality for Rusty Labaskakni before he was released in 2013 for being wrongfully accused of murdering a poacher. Rusty was a successful rugby player and prominent businessman in the safari industry, but in the wink of an eye in December 2000, his life changed dramatically. He's here with me today to talk about the traumatic experience and how he's managed to overcome the loss of everything he once held dear. So Rusty Labaskakni, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Rusty, you were incarcerated in Harare's notorious Chikarubi maximum security prison during the Zim dollar crash with food shortages, no running water, and people dying around you on a daily basis. So what happened? Please, can you tell my listeners how it all began? By all accounts, you were living the Zimbabwean dream, owning a successful safari outfit, flying your own aircraft, and running a fishing resort on Lake Kariba. Well, Peter, I'm a fourth generation Zimbabwean. Um, grew up struggling financially uh, as four kids. I lost my dad at 12. So when I left school, um, we I didn't have anything. I, I started with nothing. Tried a trade, a fitter and turning trade, but uh, being someone from Bush, that didn't work. <clears throat> so I went into the safari industry and after about five years, I realized that I could make as much money as these guys I worked for were making going on my own. So I did. And cut a long story short, I was extremely successful. Um, I ventured into cattle ranching as well and water wall drilling business and then real estate development. So uh, it developed. And the safari business wasn't only the safari side, it was a fishing resort as well. Um, and then I was framed for supposedly drowning a poacher. And it all started with conflict between a fishing corporation next door to my fishing resort. And my resort was about 800 meters away from them in a protected area. And the, the fishermen would, would lay nets in the breeding area that I was protecting for the, for the government. And so the conflict was there. And every time I flew in with my aircraft, uh, they, they'd know I'm coming. My manager wouldn't do anything because he was too afraid of them. There were, there were quite a number of them. And I would cut nets and, you know, I'd try and do the citizen thing. <clears throat> and it ended up one day um, after the land invasion chaos started and the lawlessness crept in where they, they framed me. So I chased two of them uh, in a boat, in a, in a small steel boat. And I was a long way away when I saw them. And when I started heading for them, they immediately saw that I was coming and started heading for the bank. When they were about three meters from the shore, my intention, because I was with the fishing party at the time, was to scare them off. It was half past five in the evening. So it's a four hour drive to take them to the authorities and back. So I was just intending to, to scare them off. And I turned the boat to give them my wake. And the boat 
the, my boat, the wake tilted their boat, causing them to jump out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. They were three meters from the shore and they soon scrambled to dry land and ran off into the bush. And, and I was with a friend and we both thought nothing more of it. And the next day the police arrived with one of them and accused me of drowning the other one. And it became very, very political right from the start. From the, from the time they, I mean, they only detained us. We, the police arrived that afternoon and we chatted with them and everything. And they said, don't worry, just when you leave, just report to the police station. We reported there and the animosity and hatred was unbelievable. And it started from there, it went right through the court, two and a half years later through the courts. Um, it, was, it was very ugly. Uh, there was a judge incarcerated trying to help me. Um, it became an international if, issue with Justice Parada being incarcerated, trying to assist me. <clears throat> and it ended up, uh, yeah, I got 15 years and five years removed as remission. And it, uh, it was just one hell of a shock. I mean, Rusty, you say you were framed, but obviously not everyone believed you, did they? No, Peter, you know, I mean, we're all guilty of that. When you, when you see something in the news and you read about somebody, especially somebody that started with nothing and he's done so well, the envy of people is, is so horrible. Where the, new, the media teaches you to love the negative. So when someone's doing well and they do something, you think, well, there's no smoke without fire. You know, he must, he must have been, there must have been something. And I, you know, I, was, I went through the war, rugby player, water polo player, so all rough sports and pretty wild character. And uh, people judge you. And, and it just taught me big time that don't judge other people when you haven't walked in their shoes. Um, it's turned around now. You know, everyone knows that I was innocent. But at the time, um, like many times before I was incarcerated, I would think that, oh, you must have done something, you know, so it's a big lesson for everyone. And it, and it happened at a terrible time in the history of Zimbabwe, but which I'll get to in a second. But, um, you know, being in jail in Shikaruvi, I should imagine you very quickly learned who your real friends were once convicted for murder. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Peter. I was very fortunate being a national rugby player and a big businessman. I had, you know, I knew a lot of people. And when uh, a well-known person gets incarcerated in a place like Zimbabwe, if they didn't know you before, everyone knows you after that. Um, and very luckily I had a very big friendship network. And I remember on the first public holiday, shortly after my incarceration, 78 vehicles pitched up to see me. And the jail security all pulled in. They thought they were coming to break me out sort of thing. So my, I certainly would, would not have um, done so well in there had I not had the support that I had, Peter. And uh, I tell you, I, I, I just, the value of friendship and loved ones cannot be emphasized enough to the public. And of course, number one is health. You know, I watched 2,200 guys die in my first six years. So wow. the conditions were unimaginable. And I mean, uh, <clears throat> during that well, Zimbabwe crash, you know, so it was, it was horrific. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, just to sort of get down to the nitty gritty there. I mean, I think there are a few prisons around the world that give me the horrors. Um, and one of them is Chikarubi. 
what was that experience like? I'm, you know, because I mentioned earlier, and as did you, that this coincided with the Zimbabwe dollar crash, which for my listeners who don't know, at its height was estimated at a gobsmacking 79.6 billion percent month on month. So life outside of prison was tough to say the least. I just can't imagine what it must have been like inside. Well, Peter, let me just give you an idea of how, how when you get to prison. So I, I went to Kami prison for one year. When you get to a prison, they strip you naked and you walk into the prison courtyard naked. So there were a thousand guys in there. I was the only white guy. And you know, we all have this nightmare of prison. And when, when that is a reality, I promise you there is nothing more frightening, no matter who you were when you went in there. Uh, and then the cells were 13 meters by three meters. There were 78 guys in there. Uh, everyone had 33 centimeters, 13 inches, marked out on the walls in chalk, and you were packed like sardines with legs all crossing over in the middle. You all faced the same direction. When you turned over, it was all together. As cushioning against the cold concrete floor, you'd fold two of your paper thin, worn out lice-ridden blankets several times to fit your space, then covered yourself with the third one. And your clothes were wrapped around your toothbrush and toothpaste, so that gets stolen, and that was your pillow. So just to give you an idea of, a, of the visions of a prison, there are no beds, tables, chairs, cupboards, nothing in a prison, not even a mirror. I didn't see my face for the first eight years. And it's just rows of filthy folded blankets and hundreds of well-used water bottles on bare concrete floors. So that's, that's the reality when you go in there. And then the conditions, Peter, the, the, the prison was built in 50, 1956. So all the, the gutters were leaking, running down the outside of the triple story wide walls. And the place just stunk. When you walked in, it was just the stench of urine and feces and Oh, it was, it was, and the dust, because the, the, the surrounding the, the, the prison is built inside like a rugby size field. It's right in the middle and, and around there, there's no grass. It's all dust. So everything that falls on the floor, it just blows. And the TB was unimaginable. So uh, that's where um, the, the, the dying, the death started from the TB. Because out of a thousand of us, uh, 110 had TB when I arrived. So <clears throat> it started then. And then when I got to Chikarubi a year later, I was actually transferred there in the judge's tribunal to be a state witness. Chikarubi was a little bit better as far as space-wise. We were 46 guys um, in a cell five by eight. So a little bit more space, you could at least lie on your back. Um, but still the lice, Peter, the lice in prison, they are everywhere in your blankets, in your hair, on the walls, everywhere. And they never stop. They bite you day and night. And it's something that you, it's actually the worst thing of all with the lice. I can, you know, we, we men, we can, we can handle stuff. The sleeping on the floor, you know, going without food, all that you can handle. But when something is continuously biting you all the time and leaving these itchy, weeping blisters everywhere, it, it actually drives you crazy. But in Chikarubi, it's a newer prison. So it was built in 78 to, to um, incarcerate prisoners of war. So it was a little bit better that way Mugabe was incarcerated. And, but uh, 
In 2005, which is just a little time after I got there, I arrived there in 2004, in April 2004. In 2005, Harare City ran out of water for three years. So for three years, um, each prisoner, 2,200 guys, was allocated only one plastic cup of water a day. And that was city runoff water, orange city runoff water from a nearby dam carried by farm prisoners. That was to drink, clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything for three years. And that, when the guys started dying properly, but that was the beginning of the Zimdala crash, middle of 2005. And then <clears throat> there was no food, Peter, because the, there was no food outside of prison. The shelves were empty. So we just got warehouse scraps off the warehouse floors um, at the markets, all the veggies, you know, the, the cabbage that fell on the floor and that all, the only diet you have is pup or, or sadza or grits, same thing, just called different thing. It's, it's maize meal ground up and, and boiled cabbage or boiled beans. That's it. There's no dairy, there's no fruit, there's no meat, there's nothing. That is your sole diet. So that's where the the death started coming. There was a, a disease called palagra, which is a vitamin deficiency. And your skin starts peeling off first, whatever skin is exposed to the sun. And then you start going a bit uh, mad and then you die. If you, if you Google it, you'll see palagra. And that's what a lot of the guys died from. And obviously the diarrhea was a massive thing because of all the water, the filthy water. And anyone with um, health issues, they would go first. You know, if you had HIV or something like that, you were gone. And, and the, the biggest thing we re realized there, Peter, was the power of positive thinking. Those guys that remained positive and jovial stayed alive. Those that, that mourned and, and grumpy and all that, they went. And it was amazing just finding happiness in even the smallest things that happened kept you alive. <clears throat> I mean, how did the other prisoners treat you, Rusty? Peter, there, there, there's a double-edged sword there <clears throat> where, first of all, we in Zimbabwe are a very peace-loving nation. So generally, um, the people of the whole country, are, they don't have animosity, animosity between um, races, really. They have tribal issues, but not racial issues. So... <clears throat> when I went in there, there were a lot of guys willing to help me and showing me the ropes and protecting me. You get to know the head prisoner, you know, the first thing you do is you, you get to know the, the main guy. I, and I was well known before I got in there because the guards had all told them that I was coming. Um, and then you get the hardcore criminals that try and use you and trick you because they have nothing and they try and get something from you. And the more they can sell you out to the gods the more the gods will give them. So, you know, they have nothing left to lose. But, but generally, overall, I think um, with my skin color, it benefited me more. I just can't imagine what it was like, actually. And uh, how about food? Obviously, outside of prison, as I said, it was pretty tough getting food with inflation going crazy. So... It must, you know, you were saying you were just picking scraps off the floor. Were you allowed to have food brought in for you? You know, after three years, we were allowed to get food. Just after over three, three and a half years into my time, um, we started, uh, the relatives were allowed to bring food to us daily. But that was after thousands that died already. I mean, countrywide, 
in the first six years, we all, you know, from transfers and stories from everywhere, we estimated about 15,000 prisoners died in the first six years until Red Cross took over feeding from the prisons. That was in March 2009. So from April 2-3 till March 2-9, I witnessed over 2,200 because I documented it. And, and feed, because I got to know some, some of the guards are great and some were your worst nightmare. Um, so they would give you information because they were a lot of them were affected because they could see what was going on. I mean, during the cholera outbreak of 2008 and 9, I was at Aurora Central Prison at that time. So it's a medium security prison. So you've got uh, the water had been turned on by then and it was a lot better. And in eight months out of 1,200 of us, 432 people died. That's more than one third of us in eight months. It was unimaginable, Peter. In one weekend, we lost 11 guys. I mean, I remember a guy coming and borrowing a magazine from me. And the next day, he borrowed regularly. And he was a nice old man. And I went to, to um, collect it. He didn't bring it back in the morning. So I thought, I wonder where Admire is. So I went to find Admire. He died that night. It was just, you know, cholera, it's six hours and you're gone. So the evening before, he was 100% the next morning gone. You know, you know uh, we never really hear about that kind of thing. I mean, it sounds like a total human rights disaster. But, you know, of course, while you're inside, you weren't idle and you kept yourself sane by writing a book, Beating Chains. Can you tell us about the book? Yeah, Peter, you know, there's, because there's no justice and <clears throat> uh, I was always terrified of exposing too much because of you know, a lot of guys were disappearing. Guys going into the mining business, they would just disappear. So I was very careful on that. The intelligence side of Zimbabwe is very, very skeptical. And after Mugabe was removed, because he, uh, him and the Minister, Minister of Justice were the key players in my incarceration. Um, unless I was guilty, that judge couldn't be prosecuted. So that was the bottom line. But, but I figured that if I, if I expose everything in a book, then uh, it doesn't, you know, I, I spoke to many political guys about it and they said to me, Russ, if you just write about what happened to you, no hearsay stuff. So I thought I was going to do that, but I wasn't going to do it while Mugabe was still in power. So once he was removed, then I wrote the book and it's been a bestseller at uh, the top 20 and the Golden Door Awards in, in Singapore. I mean, it's, it's done extremely well. And, and I've got uh, more huge plans to do with my story coming that uh, you'll find out within a year. Oh, fantastic. And the book is still available, of course, on Amazon, isn't it? Yes, Beating Chains. Yeah. 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 Amazon, but yeah. Now, Rusty, after your release, you went back into the safari industry and have now made it your business to show how one can harness one's inner strength and let go of what one can't control. Can you share with us that message? Yes, Peter. So, you know, when you, when you go into prison, um, in my situation, you're flying high, um, full of confidence and, and just thinking you're bulletproof. And when you go in there, they, they crush you. They crush your confidence, your spirit, your soul, everything. And when you push so far down, you have to dig really deep to find solutions to get through there. And you grow. You learn things others never have to. So when I came out of prison, um, everything had changed. I mean, we had no, you know, to, 
the thought of taking a picture on a phone and sending it to someone before I went to prison was like, you've got to be crazy. So technology had advanced so much. Everything had advanced. And everybody that I that we were mates with before had married and got kids and everything. So I felt very like a fish out of water when I got out. I mean, nice reception and everything. And then everyone is, you know, off on their lives. And I went into the safari business again, working for people that used to work for me. And it was just humiliating. It was like there was a hollowness inside me. And then I was offered, I did a couple of talks um, in, the, in the prison. <clears throat> My last two years was on a, on a farm, running a farm for the prison service. And part of that was 30 days work, five days at home, 30 days work, five days at home. So my first time I went home, I thought I better do a speech so that everyone sees that I'm, I'm not crazy, you know, because the, the news of everyone dying and everything was everywhere. And the, the feedback from that talk, I remember my national rugby coach coming to me that night and he said, you changed my life tonight, my friend. And I never forgot that. So I did a couple more. And then when I was released, I, did a, I was asked to go and talk at the Harare Royal Golf Club to a bunch of farmers that had lost their farms, 120 people at a sit-down dinner. And the reception was unbelievable. And, and all I said, you know, I just read, read out uh, part of my story. And I showed somebody that um, when I was released and they said, it was actually the CEO of Clover in South Africa while we were on safari. And he said, I've got a new life for you, my friend. This is your calling and I'm gonna sponsor you. And, uh, and now I'm a, I'm a very well-known motivational speaker, inspirational speaker. Um, and I've spoken countrywide and, and now internationally, virtually. And the difference that I'm making in changing lives far outweighs the millions I was making before. And, and it's because I have a purpose now, Peter. And, and the, the purpose is to inspire as many people as I can in the world. And the feeling of that is just amazing. And that how hard, no matter how hard it is, you can overcome it. I mean, it's an absolutely insane, incredible story. I think you should also do a talk on TEDx. You should get hold of them. Yes, I've thought about that, Peter. You know, the, the big lesson for me is you, you grow up with nothing. You're very successful. You go through trauma like that. You nail down to nothing. And then it, it's another journey from there to pick yourself up to where I am now. So it's been a, it's, there's so many life lessons um, in that whole process from forgiveness, gratitude, positive mental attitude, empathy, humiliation, um, humility, I mean, it's endless, you know, how, how do you deal with your children? My, my kids are 16 and 18. Um, the family and loved ones you leave behind, the pain they go through, you know, there's so much that you can teach people from the experience, you know. I mean, uh, Rusty, if people want to find out more about your story, about you, how to book you for talks, they can go to your website, beatingchains.com. Correct, Pete. Uh, Rusty, we're almost out of time. But listen, before we go, can you tell us, have you found peace? Peter, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I come out of prison and I realize how many people are creating their own prisons out here with trivial rubbish, and you realize that they don't have peace. We've forgotten how to love in this place, in the whole world. And I think mainstream media has a lot to do with that when they, they just pump negative, 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 and everyone is is so used to listening to negative stuff, that's all they want to listen to. And then 
you don't find peace in that. And forgiveness, when you learn forgiveness and you learn to let go of that which you have no control of, you realize how important and free you are when you carry no, no guilt, no um, regrets, you know, and it's a, it's a free feeling. And I, and I can honestly say now, because I'm married again, um, I have a beautiful wife and I just, my life at the moment is just so free. And I, and I look in front of me at the freedom in front of me, the opportunities and the, you know, the, the beauty of life in front of me and staying healthy and my friends, the value of, of all that, not what has happened to me, that is gone. It'll never be changed. And, I, and it's like it never happened. And I, I just, that's a huge message from me to everyone is just find love and peace and work on those things and you'll grow. Wow. Rusty Labaskakni, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood and sharing this incredible inspirational story with my listeners. An absolute pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much for having me on. Ah, fantastic. Cheerio. Yes, Pete. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, Faintly Amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.